Well, for those of you who haven't been here in the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Colossians on Wednesday nights. And uh, Colossians is a wonderful letter uh, written to a, a church that uh, was not from a real big city. We can identify with that. <laughs> written from a church that wasn't one of the main churches, but it was uh, an important uh, place. And every church, of course, is important. And as we said before, when Jesus talked to the churches in the book of Revelation, the first three chapters of the book of Revelation, he said, let he who has ears to hear pay attention and hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So even though this letter wasn't written to you specifically, it was written to us. Even though it was written to people in Colossae 2,000 years ago, we still can hear the words here and take heart from them. We still can learn something and should learn something from it. So in Colossians chapter 2, which is where we're about to start, we're getting into uh, some good things. Colossians chapter 1 is such a beautiful chapter. I'm glad we were able to spend three weeks on it uh, because it's so wonderful in that it describes the church, but it describes Christ above everything. And there's, there's this wonderful, last week we talked about the fact that he, he, he builds up and he talks about this mystery that's been hidden for generations. He talks about this mystery since the beginning of the world that's been hidden. And we talked about the fact that Peter, Peter mentioned it when he said prophets would prophesy and wonder, who is this that I'm prophesying about? I mean, can I see, can I get a glimpse of what this is? And he finishes off and says, here's the mystery I'm talking about. It's now revealed to us. That is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Above all, what we're going to hear in this letter to the church in Colossae and to us is that above all things, we're going to hear about Christ. We're going to hear that He is the center of all things. In fact, in chapter 1, I love that, that section. It's, it's become a touchstone for my life where He said, For by Him all things were created, through Him all things were created, and for Him all things were created. It says that He was the firstborn from the dead so that He may come to have first place in everything. Now this is what Jesus, this is who he is to us. This is who he is in the world. He is the center of the universe. All things were created by him. All things were created through his power. And all things were created for him. Now, like I've said before, does that mean all those bad things in the world were created by him? No. Those are perversions of what he's created. Those are twistings of what he's created. But everything good comes from the Father of lights. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights in whom there is no shifting or shadow. That means you were created by Him. You were created through Him. And this is the big one, you were created for Him. Life is only going to really make sense when you begin to realize everything I do should be by Him, should be through His power, and should be for Him. When He's the center and the top of everything, Life will make sense. When he's the reason you got your job. When he's the reason you married who you married. Now, you say, well, he wasn't. I didn't know Jesus when I got married. I wasn't following him. You know, God has a way of making things that started out badly. If you'll put your trust in him, he can make them right. And there are things that maybe you started out from the wrong position. And thank God, even when we get off course, I've been on planes that have gotten off course because of a storm. You know, they didn't, when they got around that storm, they didn't go right back to the same airport and start over again. They plotted a new course from where they were. That's what God does for us. We'll get off course every now and then. I don't want to get off course, but every now and then we do. And if we do, he usually doesn't take you right back to, to starting point again, make you start over again. You know, you mess up in seventh grade, he doesn't send you back to kindergarten. What he does is he plots a course from where you are and says, okay, now follow me. I know the way. And thank God, you know, you're not surprising God. He saw this all from the beginning. You can't blame it on him because he gave you free will. You can't say God made me do this. But you do know that he saw the movie. You're, you may be making the movie, but he saw the movie from the very beginning. So he knew you'd make that mistake. He knew you'd go off course, and he already planned for it. You know, it's, it's not a coincidence that, that moments after Adam sins, not long after Adam sins, God already begins to reveal his plan of redemption. 
Strangely enough, he doesn't reveal it to Adam. He doesn't reveal it to Eve, but he, he says it straight to the serpent. This woman, her seed is going to crush your head. And uh, from there on, we, the rest of the Bible begins to speak of Jesus. From the very beginning, it speaks of Jesus. It leads up to Jesus. You know, everything in the Old Testament. They didn't know it then. But like, like we read, read in Peter, the, those Old Testament prophets, they knew there was somebody coming up. That this is, we're prophesying about something in the future. We don't know what it is. That entire Old Testament was leading up to Jesus. Everything led up to Jesus. And everything after Jesus goes back and points back to him. He is the center of history. He is the hinge point of history. But the the great thing is he's not stuck in one moment of history. Jesus is not stuck 2,000 years ago. We're not just remembering a good man. Jesus is alive today. He's part of it. So that's the mystery. It's not that Christ appeared to us, but that Christ is in us, and he's our hope of glory. That's the great mystery. In chapter 2, we're going to begin to look at, we've hinted at it before. When I introduced this letter to you, I hinted at the fact that this letter was written for a couple of reasons. And one of those reasons was that there'd been some false teaching circulating the church at the time. And it was a, it was a, a set of beliefs that, was, that pops up from time to time in the New Testament. It apparently really was, was a problem in the early church. And we call it Gnosticism, but it, it likely was different strains on the same old lie. And the way that this kind of stuff begins is when someone decides... You know, everybody's believing this one thing. Everybody's believing in Jesus. Everybody's believing in the scripture. Everybody's believing in this revelation that he's revealed of himself. But you know, I've got a theory about something else. We start to get up in our brain and start to come up with wacky theories. And you feel special for a little bit because you're the first one to think about this. You know, we've all heard people, whether they're preachers or whether they're people that you work with, You ever had that guy that comes to you and has got some wacky theory and you can't find it anywhere in the Bible, but he's convinced pretty soon his whole life is wrapped around that one little wacky theory and it is imperative that you agree with him on that wacky theory. If you don't agree with him on that wacky theory, there's no hope for you. I've known people that their whole life, the only reason they read their Bible was to back up claims that there were aliens out there. That was their big deal. Well, you know, do you think that's the point of life? Do you think that all that Jesus did really centered around aliens? No, it didn't. If Jesus is the center of it all, he should be the center of our faith, of our thought, of our doctrine. He's the center of everything. Like I said last week, you can go to YouTube and get all sorts of crazy theories about all sorts of crazy things. But we're going to find out in chapter 2, how we don't get fooled, all right? You're going to know how you, not, how, how you don't have to get fooled. You don't have to get dragged along. You don't have to get tossed around. The Bible says in Ephesians 4, you are no longer to be children. He says children are tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. Every time a new theory comes out, they're tossed around by it. They, they may switch churches or they may uh, really get into this, this preacher. This is their bread and butter and they, they, everything he says is, is straight from the mouth of God. He's the one that I'm listening to. And then, you know, a year later, it's a different guy or a different lady, and they're all over the place. But the Bible teaches us that we're to grow up into Christ. And in Colossians chapter 2, we're going to find out that the way to keep from going off into Flakeville, into, into weird land, into fantasy land, is to keep your eyes on Jesus and to keep Christ at the center. If you do that, you're going to be just fine. I want to remind you what Jesus said in John chapter 10. He said, my sheep follow me. Why do they follow me? Because they know my voice. He doesn't say my sheep follow me because they've read my word. Although, you know that his word is his voice. So that's that's probably a bad example. But he doesn't say my sheep follow me because other sheep are following me. He doesn't say my sheep follow me because they went to the right church. He didn't say my sheep follow me because... They tune into the right television program. He says, my sheep follow me because they know my voice. And the way you're going to know his voice is to spend time with him and his word. He says, a stranger's voice. A stranger, I'm sorry, a stranger they simply will not follow. 
And here's the reason why. Can anybody tell me what he said here, what his reason why you won't follow the stranger? Because they don't know a stranger's voice. I shared this with the youth in Calgary at a, a conference we were just at. But some, sometimes you get the idea in your head that the best way to keep yourself from falling into some weird cult or false doctrine or some strange teaching is to learn all about all of them. To get all the books about all the cults in the world and study them. You don't have time for that. And you know what? By the time you figure all that out, there'll be a new one come along. And really, what'll happen is it warps your understanding of God so that you start opening books and your eyes light up when you find something wrong. But what you really need to do is Jesus didn't say, a stranger you won't follow because you know all the stranger's voice and you know that they're bad. Because you've looked at all their mug shots and go, I don't follow those guys. He doesn't say that's why you don't follow them. He says you don't follow strangers because you don't know their voice. So it's like if you work in a store, in a convenience store, and you want to learn how not to accept counterfeit bills. Do you go and study every single counterfeit bill that's ever been made? No, because someone's going to come along with a new one. What do you do? You study the real thing. You feel it. You touch it. You, and you know, I've, I've talked to people that have been trained in, in finding counterfeit money. And do you, know what they, do you know what they always say? They say, yeah, I ran it through the machine at one point. But before that, I knew something was wrong. I, didn't, I couldn't tell you why. But something just didn't feel right. Something just didn't look right. Because they became so familiar with the real thing that the false thing set off red flags. When you become so familiar with the real Spirit of God, with the real voice of God, with real signs and wonders, when you become familiar with God as He really is, red flags will come up when something weird comes along. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. Let me remind you what He said in chapter 1. In fact, I'm just going to go back to verse 26. He says, That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations but has now been manifested to his saints. Manifested means it has been revealed. It has been uncovered. Thank God he's uncovered something for you. He's not hiding things from you. He, he hid things for you. He's got a treasure that he's just on opening. He's just revealing to you right now. And he says this, to whom God willed to make known what is the riches of his glory of this mystery. That means when we're talking about the riches of his glory, that is so much glory in this mystery. That is more than you'll ever need. It's more than you'll ever, ever be able to fully comprehend. He said, I want to make known the riches of my glory through this mystery. And he says this, among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose also I labor, striving, not according to my strength, but according to his power, which mightily works within me. In chapter 2, verse 1, he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf, and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. Now, I want us to understand this. The reason he brings up Laodicea is because Laodicea was the neighboring city. Laodicea was the big city next to Colossae. And we find out in, in Revelation that the church in Laodicea had gotten into some not-so-cool stuff. They'd become lukewarm. They had um, began to get puffed up and arrogant in what they thought they, they thought they had, everything Jesus said, you think you're rich, but you're poor. You think you've got beautiful clothes, but you're naked. You think you... Think you you think you're, you can see perfectly, but you're blind. And Jesus doesn't just say, so I just want you to know how messed up you really are. I just want to put you in your place. You guys are, you smell bad, you're stupid, you're blind. No, he doesn't do that. He says, you need to know. It's like the little kid in the emperor's new clothes. You need to know you're naked. Wouldn't you want somebody to tell you that? You had some strange mental condition that you thought you were wearing clothes and you weren't. Thank God for good friends that say, you're not wearing anything. Jesus says, you think you've got nice clothes on, but you're naked. He says, you think you're, you can see, but you're blind. He says, you think that you're rich, but you're poor. And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says, so therefore, come to me. 
I've got clothes for you so that the shame of your nakedness would be covered. He says, come to me and buy gold so that you may be rich. He says, come to me and buy eye salve so that you may see. You see, Jesus wasn't just going to point out their faults. He was pointing out where they were lacking so that he could fill that, so that he could give them what they needed. They thought they were all that, but they weren't. And this church has been affecting the church in Colossae. How many of you know when you've got a small city next to a big city, the big city preachers come with their big city cars and the big city uh, uh, entourage, and they, they're, they're teaching in that city. They're spreading what they believe. And uh, so the church in, in Colossae was very influenced by this. And the Apostle Paul said, I've struggled for you. Now, we know that he talked about his struggle being persecuted, his struggle preaching the gospel. But here, this is a different type of struggle. Did you notice he says, I want you to know how great of a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are allowed to see it. And for all who have not personally seen my face. You see, we think that being an apostle meant he was supposed to preach to them. He's supposed to pray, uh, lay, lay hands on them and, 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 you know, be at their church and have great meetings. But here we find out that a lot of his struggle was for people he never actually got to see. What kind of struggle are we talking about? I believe right here, he's speaking about the prayer on their behalf. Great prayer on their behalf. You can't be a minister on the level that Paul is without a great prayer life. Do you know that some of us are supposed to stand on a stage, and some of you are supposed to stand in the marketplace, and some of you are supposed to stand in the streets and preach, but some of us... You may not every Sunday, every Wednesday be standing on a stage. Maybe that's not what you feel called to. But you can fight that fight. You can be a minister through prayer. And he says he's fighting for them. He's struggling for them. Let's, let's find out what he's struggling about. He says, here's what I'm struggling for. Here's what I'm fighting for. Here's what I'm praying for. That they, their hearts may be encouraged. In other words, strengthened. Having been knit together in love. And attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. Here, we're not talking about something so cheap as money. When we talk about the wealth here, we talk about that spiritual riches that he has for you that are worth more than anything else in the world. He says there is a wealth that comes from the full assurance of, of understanding. He says there's a wealth that comes from that full assurance of knowing God's will, of knowing his heart for you, of knowing his purpose, of knowing his plan of knowing that Christ is in you and he is your hope of glory. He describes that as wealth, as riches. I've been reading through these different letters. As you read through these different letters, right, written ultimately by God, but he used people to do it. Guys like Paul, guys like Peter, guys like John. You'll find out that they use terms like this, that they don't treat spiritual things lightly. They don't treat spiritual things as a, just as a means to get natural things. No, the spiritual things are the high things, are the most important things. This is the order of life. Now, God will supply every need you ever have. I believe that. I believe that God blesses spirit, spirit soul, and body. I believe that. But we also believe that the things that are unseen are eternal and therefore of way more value. And you see them using terms like this, the riches of his glory the riches of its inheritance, the wealth of knowledge that he has. Peter calls his promises precious and magnificent promises. This word is so valuable. His promises are so big. What he has for you, you realize that he's not talking about, God is not on a budget when it comes to his spirit. God's not on a budget when it comes to his grace for you. God's not on a budget when it comes to his love for you. God's not on a budget when it comes to his power. He's not rationing out a little bit to every believer. He wants to pour out this stuff in your heart. He wants you to be so full of him that it overflows into other people. He does not want you to say, I, I just have enough of him to get through the day. I just have enough grace for right now. No, no, no. He's got more than enough for you. And it says here, I want you to know. I want your hearts to be strengthened. I want them to be encouraged. I want them to be knit together in love. He says, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. 
So once you fully understand who Christ is and who he is in you, man, you're rich. That's a rich knowledge. That is a wealth of knowledge. That Your life changes altogether. He says, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. What is the true knowledge of God's mystery? That is Christ himself. You see, they had a group of people come along and try to convince them that, yeah, 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 there's all that Jesus stuff, and, and Jesus is important, and, and, and all that scripture is good, but did you know that there's secret knowledge that we can have? They started talking about this secret knowledge that, that, oh, there's a higher plane of knowledge, and we can all know this, and they really started to, to, to exalt this knowledge and this earthly wisdom and, and, and really started to acknowledge this intellectualism so much in the church that some guy who just believed in Jesus was on a lower level than some of the high-ups who had some secret mystery knowledge. Do you notice that Paul uses the word mystery a couple times in this letter? And he says, you want to know what the real mystery is? Notice he says, a true knowledge of God's mystery. You see, because what these other people were spreading was not a real, not the true knowledge. It was all this fake stuff. But he says, I want to tell you what the true knowledge of God's mystery is. Christ himself. He's the middle of everything. He's the center of everything. If you get that, you've got it all. Just don't let these guys fool you. Don't let these guys come along with their really weird, flaky, you know, strange little theories and doctrines. He says, listen, this is the point. Christ himself. The next verse in verse 3, he says this, In whom? So in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That means you don't need to go outside of Christ to find all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He says it's all in Him. If you hope to be, have any clue in the kingdom of God, if you hope to be even a second grader in the kingdom, you've got to know it's all in Christ. Can I tell you very practically, church in Lloydminster right now, that someone comes to you with a crazy new Big old doctrine, this is what they preach every Sunday, and this is their big thing in life. If it isn't centered around Jesus, it's not what you should be getting into. It's not worth your time. If it doesn't glorify Jesus, it's not of Jesus. Now, we know that there are elementary truths. Book of Hebrews talks about that. It says we move on. It says there's elementary truths about baptism, about forgiveness of sins, about repentance. He says there's deeper things. 1 Corinthians 2 says, 1 and 2 say they're deeper things for those that are spiritually mature. But even those deep things, they are all hidden in Christ. They're in Him and they center around Him. You don't want to get fooled? Don't fall for a bunch of stuff that takes you away from Jesus. Don't fall for a bunch of stuff that focus, puts the focus entirely on something else. The focus is meant to be squarely on Him. Even the deep things is just going deeper into him. Now look at what it says. He says, I say this so that no one will delude you or deceive you with persuasive argument. I like that. Philip's translation calls it high-minded nonsense. (laughs) So no one will trick you with a fancy... You know what a persuasive argument is? It's a fancy argument. A persuasive argument is somebody that that can talk better than you, that could talk circles around you. I was humbled at a moment. You know, this was before I even got married. But I had a preacher who loved me enough to say to me, Jonathan, you're a preacher, which means that you're used to talking all the time and thinking on your feet. That doesn't always mean you're right. Just because you win an argument doesn't mean you're right. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. If I won the argument, I'm right. I won the argument, right? He goes, no. He brought it up again when when I was about to get married. He says, there are going to be times where you win the argument and you'll still be wrong. Oh, man. (laughs) I thought that was the one thing I had going for me, right? She's got the looks. She's got the, the, the fashion sense. She's got, she's got all this going for her, but at least I can win an argument. No, no. You can win an argument and still be wrong. 
Some of you have had that experience. <laughs> Whether you're the person that won the argument or you're the person that knows that what you're hearing is not right, but whoever's saying it has some real fancy ways of presenting it, and they bring you around to the same point. Maybe those people knocked at your door, and you're like, ugh. You know, and, and they've got some, they, I mean, they've practiced. Oh, they've practiced on how to bring you back to the same point and how to, how to get into this circular logic. But you know what? That doesn't make them right. And you may have a fellow believer that you respect, that you love, that may be smarter than you, may have been saved longer than you, but that doesn't make them Jesus Christ in the flesh. That doesn't substitute them for the Holy Spirit. And they may have a persuasive argument, but if it takes you away from Christ, if it takes it away, the focus off of Christ, you don't need to pay attention to it. He says, I say this so that no one will trick you. I don't want you to get tricked, even with a fancy argument. So what is he saying so that we won't be tricked? He's saying here that I want your hearts to be encouraged because when your hearts are strong, you're not easily led astray. I want your hearts to be knit together in love because there's safety in that love. There's safety in that fellowship. There's safety in that togetherness. He says, I want you to attain to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding because when you really understand the mystery that is Christ himself, you don't get fooled because you know his voice and as strangers you don't follow. Because you know the truth so well that you don't fall for the counterfeit. There are a lot of counterfeits that, that I don't have our, every argument for. There's counterfeit teachings, there's counterfeit religions, and I don't know as much about them as somebody else. But I know the truth well enough that I won't fall for it. God didn't call you to a life of argument. He said, follow him, listen to his voice, have an answer for every man, but it doesn't mean that that guy's going to accept your answer every time. And it says this, that you would have a knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If you can trust that in Christ are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge that you'll ever need, and he is giving you access to these, that the deeper you get into Christ, the more you'll learn, the more you'll understand. See, because wisdom and knowledge are two different things. Knowledge is what you know, but wisdom is, is how you know how to apply it, how you, how you know how to put it into practice, how you can discern whether it's true or false. And he says, if you, if, the, if you understand Christ and you realize who He is, you won't get fooled. But not only won't you not get fooled, you will have access to these treasures that are in Him. He'll, he'll reveal things to you. In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1 that He chooses people that didn't do too well in school sometimes. He chooses people that may not be the smartest or the brightest, may not be the most colorful crayon in the pack, but at least, at least they understand where knowledge comes from. At least they understand that Jesus is the center of it all, and he uses these people and reveals things to them to confound the wise. That's awesome. It means you don't seem dumb forever. And at some point, if you'll trust the Lord, he becomes your wisdom. He is your redemption. He is uh, your righteousness. He's all these things. And, and so you can trust him that, you know, I may not get it all now. I may not have got great marks at school, but I do know that Jesus has been made unto me wisdom from God. So I can understand things that I, my IQ says I can't. Thank God. This is good news for us. Some, some of you say, that's not good news for me. I'm, I'm pretty smart, but that's betraying something right there. You know, the scripture says that, um, this is just a paraphrase of it, but it basically says this, that knowledge puffs up. But love builds up. And do you know when you're puffed up, what happens? Eventually you get popped. If you're puffed up, you will get popped at some point. But if you're built up in love, you're built up and that doesn't get knocked down. There's a true knowledge that comes from knowing God. There's a true knowledge. You don't just know about Him, you actually know Him. I'll tell you, that's, that's I mean, you guys could all... Get together and, and practice your Tia Bounds imitations. And you could get your best voice down. You could use computer software. But I will know if you call me and try to impersonate my wife. Not because I've learned your impersonation, 
but because I've spent time with my wife. I don't just know her statistics. I don't just know her baseball card. I know her. Nobody in this room would ever be able to fake it. I know her too well. The more time you spend with the Lord, you're not going to get fooled. You'll know him. You'll know him, not just about him, but you'll know him. Even if someone were able to replicate that tone, even if they were able to replicate the exact voice, wouldn't take you long, you'd recognize that's not something that my wife would say. In the same way, when you know the Lord, you'd say that's not his character. That's not the way, he, that's not something he would say. And you, you said it really fancy. You put a thus says the Lord in front of it in King James English. You wore a white flowing dress or a white suit while you did it. But I don't buy it. Because I know Jesus. Now that's not Jesus. And he says this. He says in verse 5, For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit. Rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. A lot of times we rejoice because somebody shot up like a rocket. Sometimes we rejoice because somebody had a big, you know, firecracker moment. But here, and that's good, I rejoice in those things too. But here he's rejoicing because of their good discipline and their stability. How many times do you hear somebody do that? How many times do you have somebody get up? I want you to give a testimony. And somebody says, you know what? I have been more disciplined lately, and I have been stable in Christ. Woo! Hallelujah! Yeah! You know, you don't get that very much where people are running around the church. Discipline, stability, you know, that doesn't happen. But maybe it does. I don't know. Some of you are going, I would rejoice for that. But the Apostle Paul rejoiced that they were disciplined and they were stable in their walk with Christ. Now, that's, that's a big deal. Because someone who's stable can be a foundation, can be, the Bible describes these kind of people as pillars in the house of God. You're holding other people up. You're supporting the work of God in your city, in your nation. And you know, stable to Christ doesn't mean level like this. Stable to Christ means on a constant incline, constantly growing up into Him. You don't find a Christian who is running a plat plateau like this straight across. Like I've said, it's like riding a bicycle uphill. You can't just stop. You either go backwards or you go up. <laughs> and you know, so, so stability in Christ is always growing up into him. But it's not tossed around. It's not a roller coaster. It's stable. It's disciplined. Now we in Canada need to get back to liking the word discipline. It, that word has been abused, I know. But you, want, you know, the root word of discipline is disciple. You watch how Jesus treated his disciple, and you'll find out how he disciplines. You watch how he talked to Peter and John and James. You watch how he taught them. He didn't just teach them by words. He, he showed them. He brought them into these places. He went with them, and sometimes they were corrected, and sometimes it wasn't nice. None of us want to hear, get behind me, Satan. None of us want to hear Jesus say, how long do I have to be with you? And you're like, I thought you always wanted to be with me. I thought my picture was on your refrigerator. I thought you adored me. You know, and he says things like, oh, wicked and perverse generation. You of little faith. But you knew when they wrote about this, they said things like, we experienced and handled his glory. We knew that he loved us and he loved us to the end. Oh, I love that statement. He loved us, and he loved us to the end. They knew the love of God. They knew the love of Jesus. They never doubted that they were loved and cared for and protected and secure. And when the opportunity came to leave, they said, where else could we go? You alone have the words of life. That's what discipline brings. True discipline. It's not abuse, it's discipline. It says in verse 6, Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. This goes along with what we said on Sunday. He says, you're light. Walk as children of light. You're saints. Talk like saints. And here he says, if you've received Jesus, walk in Him. Isn't this simple? You start with your identity. I am in Christ. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. I am light. I am a saint. So now act like that. He says, you've received Jesus, now walk in Him. 
It doesn't just say walk after Him. It doesn't just say walk with Him. I know, thank God, we talk about walking with God. But look at this. It says walk in Him. That's in His power. That's in His strength. That's in His joy. That's in His peace. That's in His love. In Him. He says in verse 7, having been firmly rooted, so nobody can yank you up, put you in another garden. You're rooted. Firmly rooted and now being built up. So this is talking about the, the foundation and the roof. This is talking about you're rooted down here and you're being built up up here. Thank God you're not going anywhere. You know, you don't want your plant to get too big if it's not putting roots down. Why? Because in a storm it gets blown away. You don't want to build a big tall house that doesn't have a foundation. Earthquake comes, that thing's gone. High wind comes, that thing's gone. So we understand that God loves you enough that it's going to be very hard to grow up if you're not rooted. Do you know what I'm saying? Now we got a lot of super spiritual people that may impress you with their woos, but uh, if they're not firmly rooted, they're not going to grow up that much this way because God loves them enough not to have them torn apart. You want to grow up? You want to you get get you know higher in the spirit you want to be grow up in Christ and know all these great things will get rooted be rooted and established in him your roots are firmly in Christ they're firmly in who he is and the revelation of him it says being rooted and now being built up in him and established established means it's not going anywhere established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude so these people took instruction, they were able to be instructed, and they were established in the faith. The reason I say all this to you is, and the reason I think it's important that we hear this, is because there are two reactions to new teachings and new things that come through. Some people will follow every new thing that comes through. And some people have seen it abused or seen it misused and have seen the flake and the weird, and so they just stay firmly where they've always been. Anything new, they're suspicious of immediately. They scowl at a new style of music. They scowl at a new revelation. Oh, no, it's, it's, if, oh, give me that old-time religion. This is what it used to be. Now, I like the old-time religion, too. But we're humble enough, hopefully, to know that we don't have it all figured out. And God's going to reveal more through His Word. It's always going to be from His Word. It's always going to be revealed through Him, through His Spirit. He's going to reveal more to us that we don't know right now. So we need to know how to be grounded and rooted so that we can be built up. And when you're built up, you're going to heights that you've never been before. You're going to experience things you haven't experienced before. You see, somebody might hear this and think that the safest thing to do is just get, get stuck in the oldest tradition you've ever heard of and stay there. But that's not what this is about. This is about growing up but being rooted enough that you're not growing the wrong way. You're not tossed over into another, uh, you know, some new wind tossing it over into another field. That you're firmly planted in Christ so that when you do learn something new, when you do get a revelation of Him, it'll be firmly grounded in who Christ is. He'll be the center of it. You won't get fooled by some weird stuff. Let's read this. It says, see to it. Whose responsibility does that sound like it is? It's your responsibility. You see to it. But Paul, you're the apostle. Can't you just make sure that nobody bad preaches here? Can't you just make sure that we don't believe anything? No, you're not kids anymore. At some point, you've got to grow up. You want your 45-year-old son to be living in your basement playing Nintendo? That's fine. But if he's healthy, got a job, got some ambition, you want him to be able to move out and think on him for himself. You don't want him to be, you don't want your kids when they're grown up to be calling you going, what should I do for supper? I don't know. Do you mean you just can't decide? No, I don't know what to do. You really don't want this. You want people to grow up at some point. And you can't always be babysat. So here he says, see to it, you see to it. This is your job. Here's your job. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy 
and empty deception. Do you know there will be better philosophy people? Yeah, people who, my goodness, I can't even find the word for it. Philosophers. Philosopher is a very simple word. There'll be better philosophers than you. There'll be better teachers. There'll be better, as we said before, better arguers than you. But see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy. Do you know philosophy is all in your head? Philosophy is not in your spirit. It's all in your head. didn't come from the Word. didn't come from God. It is earthly. It is man-made. And man-made only goes so far. The Bible says the wisdom that is from below is demonic. Is earthly. It says the earthly wisdom is demonic. It's messed up. So, you know, somebody might have a fancy, cool theory about Jesus. You know, they may start the, the conversation by saying, you know, I've been thinking. You know, I believe in thinking. God gave me a brain, and I plan to use it. I believe in thinking. I believe we're not supposed to be empty-headed Christians who just don't think. Because the Bible says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You know, he gave you a brain. He wants you to use it. But you know, we have this conversation. Somebody's been thinking, and they're not, they're not really, it didn't come from the Word. It didn't come from the Spirit. It just came from them lying awake at night, thinking. And it becomes philosophy, not a relationship with God, not, not revelation, but philosophy. Do you, here's, the, here's the key. We may be smart people. We may think we're smart, but we're nowhere near as smart as God. We're just not even close. And so everything good that we know and understand is through revelation. Revelation means God uncovered it for you. He revealed something to you. Oh, he let us know something. It's like, it's like a 3D God came into a 2D world, and we're trying to understand. Oh, man, I don't really get what you're talking about, but he's explaining these things to us. The Bible says no one has seen God, but Jesus, he explained him to us. So there's things that don't make sense. The Bible says the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. It says that the wisdom of God seems like foolishness to everybody else. Of course it does. I mean, doesn't this seem like foolishness? Unless you have faith, unless you understand that there is a God and He knows a whole lot more than you. I love science. I love it. But I believe that science will catch up with God, not the other way around. Now, do some people read the Bible and Use it, interpret it through their own scientific lens. I'm sure that happens. But I believe that God knows what he's doing. And he knows a lot better than we do. And so the best thing we can do, stay away from being held captive by philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, there are plenty of doctrines out there that did not come from the word, but they came from experience. They came from somebody saying, you know what? My grandma loved the Lord, and, you know, she died, and I had this, and we prayed for a miracle and didn't see a miracle, so God must not do miracles anymore. Well, you show me in the Bible where it says this is going to stop. Show me in the Bible where it says lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Uh, until John croaks, then, then no more. It's not there. There's no evidence in the scripture for it. So it came from experience, which is tradition of men. It says this, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather, and this is the key, than according to Christ. So every good revelation, every new thing that you're ever going to learn is going to be according to Christ, not according to some new theory that somebody thought up and it makes sense and all the links come together. And if you add this number to this number to this number, whoa, do you realize all this time? Don't get off into space camp. Just believe in Jesus and let him reveal these things to you. And the deeper you get into him, the deeper things you'll understand. He says this, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells. In bodily form. That means everything that God is, everything, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it dwelled in Jesus. And there was still a Father. There was still a Holy Spirit. There was still a Son. But Jesus said, I'm in Him. He's in me. I have that Spirit in me. I walk by that Spirit. I don't do anything unless the Father tells me to do it. I don't say anything He tells me to say it. Every work I do is by the Spirit of God. 
And so here we understand that all the fullness dwells in Jesus. All the fullness dwells in bodily form. And in Him, you have been made full. You've been made complete. So don't let these guys come to you and tell you, oh, you, you don't have it all. There's more that you haven't heard of. Because He says, in Christ, you've got it all. You've got everything you need. He says, and in Him, you've been made complete. And He is the head. Over all rule and authority. And anything good is going to have him at the head of it. It says, and in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This is addressing the Judaizers that came and tried to convince people they had to go back to the Jewish ways. He said, you've been buried with him in baptism in which you've also been raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. We're going to stop there for right now. But I want you to see how big this is. Whatever your education level is, whatever your IQ is, whatever your understanding is, wherever you are in your walk with Christ, everything good you're ever going to know is going to have Him at the center of it. It's going to come from Him. He's good enough that He's not going to overload your brain. But you know, your spirit hears before your brain hears it. I believe that when we preach, we preach to, not just to a person's head, but to their spirit. And that's where faith comes from. I believe that when we read our Bibles, we don't just read it with our, our brain turned on. We, t- we read it by the Holy Spirit. and as, as the book of 1 John says, the anointing abides within you and is able to teach you all things. Do you believe that you can pray before you open that Bible and say, God, I ask you that you reveal these things to me, things I don't even understand, that you give me wisdom and knowledge, that I would understand what you want me to understand. I'd see what you want me to see. And you can open that Bible and understand things you never understood before. Because that's where it comes from. It is revealed by God. And you know what? What we're discovering through all of this is that all this deep revelation all this further wisdom and understanding, all of this fullness of the knowledge of His will with all spiritual wisdom and understanding, it all first started with somebody asking for it in prayer. Paul asked for this for the church, and he said, you need to ask for it yourself. James said, if anybody lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives freely without reproach. He's not going to make fun of you because you needed wisdom. You know, you may be asking, you may say, they quote this scripture in church all the time, and I don't know what it means. You ever, you ever felt like that? You ever had, maybe it was me or somebody else that opened up a scripture and said, this is a scripture you all know very well, and then they read it and you go, I've never heard of it before, you know. I feel stupid. Now every, apparently everybody knows this one but me. Don't feel that way. If you've ever felt that way, understand that God is not going to make fun of you if you ask for wisdom. He's not going to knock you down a peg because you had to ask for help. I always felt like that in school. Like if I raised my hand, and asked a question that that was automatically going to make me seem stupider because I had to ask a, a simple question. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. Ask questions. And he'll freely give you wisdom. Freely gives it. And freely doesn't just mean without cost. It does mean without cost, but it also means without measure. He'll just freely give it to you. Thank God. We won't get fooled. We won't get tricked. We won't be. Now, listen, it says that people were being held, taken captive by philosophy and empty deception. And this is what happens when you believe every new thing that everybody tries to tell you is you can be held captive by it. Instead of going where God wants you to go, you're stuck. Here's how you keep from getting tricked Christ is the head, Christ is the foundation. Christ is the center. You keep your eyes on Jesus. You you realize that every every bit of wisdom, knowledge, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in Him. You seek Him and you'll find it. You'll seek Him and He'll open more up to you. Don't look to other things or other people. Look to Him. God will use people, but you'll know it's coming from Jesus. It It glorifies Him. It keeps Him at the center of it all. If it takes you away from that, Paul said to Timothy, he says, you know, make sure that you don't fall into this debates, meaningless debates over 
genealogies. And he says, he says don't, don't fall into fables and myths and stories fit for only old women. No offense to the old women. There's none here, thank God. No, not, you know, we love, thank, he also talked about godly old women. My goodness, it was just a, it was just a figure of speech, and, and I didn't even say it. I'm getting blamed for Paul here, it's not my fault. You talk to him. <laughs> Having to defend a guy that died 1,900 years ago. So anyways, <laughs> praise the Lord. But here's how you keep from getting tricked. You keep Christ as the center of everything. You seek Him, and when you want to go deeper, you go deeper into Him. In Him are hidden everything you need. The Bible says He's granted us, through the true knowledge of Him, everything pertaining to life and godliness. But it says through the true knowledge of Him. Everything you'll ever need for life, everything you'll ever need for godliness comes through a true knowledge of who God is, who Christ is. As much as we may teach about other things, as much as we love every verse in this Bible, it will all point to Jesus. It will all keep Christ at the center of the mix. We won't get fooled. We won't get tricked. We won't be deceived. We won't be kept captive. But you're going to get smarter. You're going to be wiser. God's going to use you to confound the philosopher of philosophers, the lawyer of lawyers, the scribe of scribes. As it says in 1 Corinthians 1, where is your scribe? Which to the Jews was the one who understood the law better than anyone else. He says, where is your debater? Which to the Greeks was the one who could argue better than anybody else who was smarter than everybody else. He says, has, God, has not God taking the foolish to confound the wise. God can use you. Some of you are smart. Some of you are smarter. And God can use you all. Let's not fall for empty philosophy or deception, traditions of men. Let's seek true knowledge. Let's seek true understanding. Let's seek Christ himself. Amen.